Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Before we begin, I, I want to let you know about a new show from Curious Cast that I think you might really, really enjoy. It's called Russia Rising. Putin's Russia has been accused of using internet trolls and hackers and even assassins to influence the West. This new investigative podcast hopes to unravel this, this giant mystery with the help of those who know best. Russian trolls, hackers, Putin supporters, even a former Russian KGB agent. Join Europe Bureau Chief of Global News, Jeff Semple. He goes on a journey to unravel how Russia has gone from tenuous ally to a potential global threat. You can listen to Russia Rising for free at CuriousCast.ca or wherever you're enjoying the ongoing history of new music. Do it. Trust me. You'll love it. Okay. Is it just me or has there been an uptick in the number of one-hit wonders over the past couple of years? Think about all the hot bands who've had just one good album or even just one good song before they're forgotten. Now, in the old days, a group developed and evolved over a series of albums, three, four, five, six records even. It was slow, took a lot of patience, a lot of fighting to keep things together, but more often than not, it paid off. I mean, look at U2 or R.E.M. or Blur or Depeche Mode or Nine Inch Nails. None of these bands was what you'd call immediate, instant, hit-it-out-of-the-park successes. Each group was allowed to build a career the old-fashioned way, slowly and carefully. And most importantly, they were allowed to make mistakes along the way. Oh, you know who we missed in this list of bands? Radiohead. They started slow. I mean, really slow. They made a bunch of mistakes. They conducted a lot of experiments, some successful, some failures. But because they've stuck together, because they've always believed in their mission, and most of all, because they all happen to be exceptional musicians, Radiohead has become one of the most revered, most influential, and most analyzed groups in the history of alt-rock. And that's not all. Along the way, they've managed to rewrite a lot of the rules about what a band is and isn't supposed to do in the music industry. This is the story of how Radiohead got to where they are today. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Radiohead from their 2016 album, A Moon-Shaped Pool, which, like everything they've done since 2008, has been an independent project. Radiohead has no use for the major label system anymore and does everything on their own and on their own terms. Welcome again. I'm Alan Cross, and this is the first of a three-parter on Radiohead, one of those rare, rare bands that is unlike any other on just about every level. They're legendary. They're mythic. Everything they do is documented down to the tiniest detail. Critics love them. And they don't just have fans. They have disciples. There's really no other way to put it but to say that Radiohead is one of the most important bands of our lifetimes. But how much do we really know about them? Let's see if we can put all this information in the right place. Okay, sorry about that. I just had to do it. The most visible member of Radiohead is Tom Edward York, so let's start with him. He's from a tiny English town called Wellingborough. His birthday was October 7th, 1968. 
Tom is, uh, how do we put this, uh, a delicate little guy, standing about 5'5". Five five. He's always been kind of sickly and skinny, which was of concern to his father, who was not only a chemical engineer, but a burly, tough championship boxer. He once gave Tom a pair of gloves, but whenever Tom tried to box, he'd just end up face down on the canvas. And then there's the whole thing about the eye. Tom was born with part of his left eye paralyzed. The eyelid was fixed in the down position, and at first everybody thought it was going to stay that way. But his parents took him to a specialist who figured a way to graft in a muscle in a complicated series of surgeries, and the first four operations went very well. It was the fifth one where they kind of screwed up, and as a result, Tom's got the droopy eye, and his vision is down to about 50% on that side. For his first couple of years in school, he had to wear an eye patch, and you can imagine how tough that was. And because he was so pale and thin, he picked up the nickname Salamander. He ended up in a lot of fights over that, and even the boxing lessons from his dad didn't help that much. Here is a classic case of someone retreating into music because everything else in his world seemed so difficult. He got his first guitar at age eight, but he soon got so frustrated with it that he smashed the thing to pieces in a big temper tantrum. But he eventually got his act together, and a few years later, he formed his first band. This was at age 10. He later joined a punk band called TNT, and he ended up being the singer because nobody else wanted to do it. When he wasn't in class at school, Tom could be found hanging out in the music room. Tom's first song? A nuclear holocaust thing called Mushroom Cloud. Tom got all freaked out by the Cold War documentaries on the BBC. So he wrote a song about everything being blown to bits. And his first guitar hero? It was Brian May of Queen. Tom still loves the guitar solo in Bohemian Rhapsody. All right, let's move on to Colin Greenwood. He's from Oxford. Colin was the bass player in Tom's band TNT. His brother John is a couple of years younger. And if this makes any difference, he's colorblind. Thanks to an older sister who was into bands like Joy Division in the fall, the two brothers, Colin and Johnny Greenwood, got into music together in their early teens. Ed O'Brien is also from Oxford. He's the tall one. In fact, when he was 14, he had a nice little gig going as the provider of porn for the rest of his class. And that's because he was the only one tall enough to reach the top shelf where they kept the dirty magazines at the local newsstand. That made him very popular. Until the day one of the guys at the boarding school left a copy on his bed, and ratted Ed out as to where it came from. And then there's drummer Phil Selway. He comes from a family of academics. Tom, Colin, and Ed met at the same private school in Oxford, a place called Albington, and started playing together in their final year. So we had three guitarists and a bad drum machine named Dr. Rhythm. Their first gig was at a friend's birthday party. This would be sometime in 1982, which means everybody was about 14 and 15 years old at the time. Phil Selway was drafted in from an Albington group called Jungle Telegraph to replace that horrible drum machine. Oh, and by the way, Phil is also a decent tuba player. If that makes any difference to anything. And uh, his nickname is Mad Dog because he used to be prone to big temper tantrums. Just thought I'd throw that in. As it turns out, the only day the guys could rehearse was Friday. So the band became known as On a Friday. Tom, Phil, Colin, and Ed couldn't tell their parents what they were doing because they, uh, well, they really disapproved of this dabbling in rock and roll stuff. Colin's younger brother, Johnny, was at these practices, not to play, but just so Colin could keep an eye on him. He was babysitting him. 
But after hearing him whine about wanting to do something, everybody just gave in and made him part of the band. So he would be about 13 at the time, while everybody else was 16 or 17. Now, at first, On a Friday was all over the place. Johnny played harmonica, sometimes the recorder. Tom played keyboards every once in a while. And at one point, On a Friday featured an all-female horn section. At another time, there were three saxophone players in the band. They weren't very good, but at least they were having a good time. The earliest recording that seems to exist is a 1986 cassette that was recorded at Albington. It was a five-track thing that they issued themselves. Johnny Greenwood is not part of the band yet, but a sax player named Raz Peterson is. You can hear all kinds of 80s influences here. U2, Waterboys, Psychedelic Furs, The Smiths, and that's Tom York on lead vocals, of course. He's 17 when this was made. Track one of a five-track cassette released under the name On a Friday in 1986. Between 1987 and 1991, On a Friday went on an extended sort of hiatus. All five members of On a Friday went to different colleges. Ed O'Brien went to Manchester University. Colin landed a hard-to-get spot at Cambridge, where he studied English literature. Same with Phil, big English lit guy at Liverpool University. When he got out of grade school, Johnny Greenwood enrolled in both the music and psychology programs at Oxford. And Tom? Well, Tom decided to take a year off before university. He spent some time selling men's suits, something that he hated. So he got a better job, a gig in a mental hospital, before he went back and enrolled in Oxford. They all had regular jobs, too. Ed worked in a pizza parlor where physicist Stephen Hawking was a regular customer, which was really kind of weird because Professor Hawking ordered pizza himself using his computerized voice device. Ed later worked as a bartender, then pouring Earl Grey in an old-fashioned tea room. Phil had a job as an editor at a publishing house that produced textbooks and academic works, also did some teaching. Tom supplemented his income working as a DJ at a campus pub, and he was pretty good, too. His regular gig was Friday, and he often attracted a thousand people or more to hear him spin. It was here that he connected with a bouncer named Shaq, and they formed a group called the Headless Chickens, and they ended up playing dozens of gigs around the city of Exeter. Now, I did find this. It is a Headless Chickens version of High and Dry that would later be refined into something properly radiohead. Now, that's interesting. Tom York in a pre-Radiohead band doing a future Radiohead song, The Headless Chickens and High and Dry. Interesting side note, it was while at Exeter and playing in this band that Tom met Stanley Donwood. He would go on to become Radiohead's key guy when it came to artwork and promotional material, and he still is. Meanwhile, once a month, all the On a Friday guys would still get together and rehearse, on a Friday, of course, and to plot what they might do together once this whole school thing was out of the way. And for the next four years, On a Friday would occasionally commit stuff to a cheap tape recorder. And by the end of 1990, they had about maybe 15 original songs. Meanwhile, Colin, between shifts at a local record store called Manic Hedgehog, 
was also the school's entertainment director, which meant he was free to book on a Friday in school pubs whenever he felt like it. And when school was out for the summer, on a Friday would still get the occasional gig. They'd also spend time busking on the street. It was somewhere around this time that on a Friday did two things. First of all, all five guys moved in together. They found a semi near the center of Oxford and they recorded their first proper demo. Three songs, 300 pounds, no title, no catalog number, just a cassette of three on a Friday songs. I think we should hear a sample. That's Radiohead, still known as On a Friday, with an early version of Stop Whispering that was recorded in April 1991. The big day that everybody remembers is July 22nd, 1991. That's when they played a show at the Hollybush Inn in Oxford, their first post-graduation concert. Now, it certainly wasn't their first gig. Remember, everybody had been playing together off and on for years. So by everyone's estimates, On a Friday had been on stage at least a hundred times before the show at the Hollybush. The gig was described as five friends, two strobe lights, and a smoke machine. In other words, not really a big deal. It was the second gig that changed everything. It didn't come until October when they played a local place called the Jericho Tavern, which, by the way, was semi-famous at the time for hosting other big-ish Oxford bands like Supergrass and Ride and Slow Dive. By that time, two things had happened. With the money they had earned through their part-time jobs, on a Friday had recorded a five-song cassette which went on sale through that local indie record store called Manic Hedgehog for three pounds a copy. Word of mouth on the band had spread so fast that there were no fewer than 25 record company reps in the house at the Jericho that night. That was Collins doing. See, he was working in the record store, and whenever label reps came in, he would slip them a copy of this cassette. That cassette ended up being referred to as, appropriately, the Manic Hedgehog tape, and it featured songs like this. It's called Philip a Chicken. What is this thing about chickens? By the end of 1991, on a Friday were being stocked by various record company people. And by the end of the year, they finally had their record deal. On December 21st, 1991, they signed an album deal with EMI. They also had a new name. On a Friday, just didn't cut it. We'll pick up things there next. This is the first of a three-part of tracing the career of Radiohead. And here's where we finally get to the part where we can call them Radiohead. Colin Greenway had worked at another record store called Our Price, where he kept handing out On a Friday demos to any record company reps that might come in. And this is how the cassette landed in the hands of a guy named Keith Wolzencroft. Out of all the connections made, this was the one that stuck. And on a Friday, signed that six-album deal with EMI. But their new masters at the label did not like the name on a Friday. So the band was instructed to go away and find something better. Now, being a band full of English majors... Somebody suggested Jude the Obscure from the title of a Thomas Hardy novel, but that was, uh, well, it was too obscure. Then there was Music. Tom liked that one, but he was shouted down. Somebody suggested Gravitate, but that one didn't have the right ring to it. 
But then someone, we don't know who, dug into Tom's DJ collection and pulled out a 1986 album by the Talking Heads called True Stories. And on that album was a song called Radiohead. Two words. And so it came to pass that at the end of 1991, on a Friday, became known as Radiohead. The next order of business was a debut EP. They called it Drill. It appeared on May 5th, 1992, and just 3,000 copies were produced. Just four tracks, kind of modest, all of which were on a Friday demos. This is a sample. It's the lead-off track, Prove Yourself. Radiohead, side one, track one of their first commercially available recording. That's Prove Yourself from an EP entitled Drill. Now, the Drill EP did not do well. It charted at number 101, and record stores really couldn't give it away after a while. Part of the problem was the sound of the EP. Radiohead had let their managers produce the thing, and these guys were enamored with the biggest hit on the radio at the time, this Nirvana track called, uh, I think it was Smells Like Teen Spirit or something. And the result was, was a confused mess. The second Radiohead single also got off to a bad start. It was a song written while at university. Tom was in the middle of a drinking binge, and he was feeling rather maudlin about his chances with girls. So, yes, if you've always thought that this song sounds like it was written in an alcoholic stupor, you would be right. Tom was pining over a girl that he used to see in the cafes and bars around Oxford. Eight months of unrequited love came out in the lyrics. Tom has never revealed her name, but has said, oh, she knows who she is. Tom had actually hidden the song from the rest of the band because he thought it was too weak and wimpy. When he finally presented it at rehearsal one day, Johnny Greenwood couldn't hold back. He hated the song. It was whiny, it was weak, it was self-pitying, and it just plain sucked. Even when Johnny was outvoted and the song was taken into the studio, he still tried to sabotage everything. He kept inserting this loud, grinding scratch across his guitar just before the chorus. Honestly, he was just being a jerk. He was trying to piss everybody off so much that they would just abandon the whole idea. Here is one of those weird, serendipitous moments in music. When Radiohead ran through the song in preparation for a proper take, their producer secretly pressed record in the control room. And what we all ended up hearing was Radiohead recorded raw in secret with Johnny trying to screw things up deliberately. And it changed everything. But I'm a Now, obviously, that is not the original version of Creep because Tom repeatedly drops the F-bomb. And initially, Radiohead was very worried about releasing a cleaned-up version because it would mean that they were selling out. But they were in need of a hit, so they reluctantly made a change. Sidebar here. Radiohead was later nailed for copyright infringement by the Hollies on this song. It was determined 
that Creep sounded way too similar to a 1972 song called The Air That I Breathe. Take a listen. One of the litigants in this trial was Albert Hammond, the father of Albert Hammond Jr. of The Strokes. And if you look at the songwriting credits today, you'll see that Albert Hammond Sr. and his partner Mike Hazelwood each get 25% of the writing credit for Radiohead's Creep. Back to Radiohead. The Creep EP was released on September 21st, 1992. 6,000 copies were pressed. It reached number 78 on the charts. And the BBC played the song exactly twice before pulling it from the playlist. They said it was just too depressing to play. Even their record company had doubts. However, Creep would end up having more lives than a cat, despite the fact that Radiohead tried to kill it many times. But every time they tried to destroy it, it just came back stronger than ever. In fact, it's now considered to be one of the three great slacker anthems of the early 90s, ranking right up there with Nirvana Smells Like Teen Spirit and Loser from Beck. We're going to get to this whole story in just a bit. But for the time being, Radiohead had to get another single out there. So in February of 1992, they elected to go with a new recording of Anyone Can Play Guitar, one of the songs that appeared on the Manic Hedgehog tape back in October of 1991. This seemed like a really good idea. Radiohead had been using the song to start their live sets, and people seemed to like it. And things worked out, well, okay. In fact, it's an answer to the trivia question, what was Radiohead's first top 40 hit in the UK? It was Anyone Can Play Guitar, which reached number 32 on the British charts. February 93 also marked the release of Radiohead's debut album, February 22nd, actually, and they called it Pablo Honey. And you know where they got that title? Well, remember the Jerky Boys and their crank phone calls? Radiohead was given a Jerky Boys tape by another English group called Chapter House, and there's one bit where someone makes a call to a guy and pretends to be his mother. And the conversation opens like this. Hello? Yeah? Pablo, honey? Yeah? Please, honey, come down to Florida. Huh? Come to Florida, honey. We miss you. Yeah, who's this? The members of Radiohead, all considering themselves to be mama's boys to some extent, decided that this was somehow an appropriate title for their debut album. So that's what they did. And Pablo Honey was, like I said, released on February 22nd, 1993. Now, Creep was the lead single. Stop Whispering, that old On a Friday track, was the third single. And in between was Anyone Can Play Guitar. And like I said, everybody was absolutely thrilled when this one made it all the way to number 32 in the British charts. Radiohead got some okay press with the Pablo Honey album, but nothing terribly spectacular. The band started out a string of 350 live shows, facing an uphill battle to be taken seriously. But then they got lucky. Very, very lucky. And everything changed. A strange thing happened far off in the Middle East. The home office of EMI, Radiohead's record label, began receiving excited reports from an employee named Uzi Price, 
who looked after EMI affairs in Israel, of all places. He had given a copy to a radio DJ named Yoav Kutner, who worked, believe it or not, for Israeli Armed Forces Radio. He decided to play the song a couple of times on Israeli Armed Forces Radio, and the response from listeners was was nuts. I mean, it's huge, really, really big. It was so big that EMI interrupted Radiohead's UK tour to fly them to Tel Aviv to play three shows, March 31st and April 1st and 2nd, 1993. Those gigs only made Creep a bigger hit in Israel. Then the excitement somehow spread to New Zealand and then to parts of Scandinavia. Then an Israeli import of Creep wound up in the hands of a clerk in a record store in Berkeley, California called Maud Lang. That clerk happened to be an intern at a San Francisco radio station. He brought it into work, and the radio station loved it so much that they began to play it. And at about the same time, an English import of the single started getting major attention in Toronto, and then Los Angeles, and then all across North America. Seeing that they were on to something, an edit was recorded with Tom substituting very for the F word, and that was it. Now, Tom did not like doing that, but, you know, he understood. And it was worth it because suddenly Creep was one of the biggest alternative singles in the world. It even became a top 40 hit in some countries. Now, I'd still wonder what happened to the girl who inspired Tom to write that song. Again, we don't know her name. But he does say that he once got into a lot of trouble after he admitted that the song was about a real person. Regardless, the song made Radiohead some very good money. Tom bought a house that he ended up calling the house that Creep built. And then it was time to make a second album. Radiohead started working on their second album in the middle of January 1994. They started by rehearsing all the material in an Apple storage shed that was in the middle of an old fruit farm, which they had bought and refurbished, with the money they made from Creep. They called this place Canned Applause. By the 28th of February, they were in a proper studio in London, working on tracks with producer Steve Lecky, the guy famous for producing the Stone Roses debut album. His resume also included Simple Minds, XTC, and a stint at Abbey Road Studios as an engineer where he worked with Pink Floyd. Those sessions didn't go very well. There was a real lack of communication between Lecky and the band. The songs were arranged, rearranged, and rearranged again before falling apart completely. Lucky had five songs in mind for singles, which weren't the five songs that Radiohead were thinking about. About the only thing that went right was this song. After a really bad day, when everybody spent about six hours yelling at each other, Lucky just sent the band home. Everybody, get out, except you, Tom. Lucky told Tom that he just needed something called a guide vocal for this one track. A guide vocal is not designed to be permanent. Its purpose is to guide the rest of the band as they were recording all the other parts. And once all that has been accomplished, the guide vocal is erased and the real work on the vocals can begin. So Tom sat down and sang the song once. And then he burst into tears because the strain had finally got to him. But it was brilliant. And that guide vocal, that one-take guide vocal is what we end up hearing on an album that was eventually called The Bends. Fake Plastic Trees. Legend has it that Tom's vocal performance on that track was inspired by the late Jeff Buckley, 
whom the band had seen at a local bar the night before. Oh, and the Bends? What a good name for an album. The pressure was so intense that the band felt that they were suffering from the Bends, just like some deep sea diver who came up to the surface too fast. And it got worse before it got better. Everyone thought that the album would be finished by the summer of 1994, so they, under pressure from the record company, went ahead and booked a world tour. But summer came, and the album still wasn't done, so Radiohead had to abandon the recording sessions in midstream so they could live up to all these concert commitments. Meanwhile, record companies on both sides of the Atlantic were getting nervous. They wanted another monster like Creep, but when Radiohead issued this song as a single, a song written while the band was on tour with James in 1993, it wasn't exactly what everybody was expecting. It was part of an EP, and depending on which version of the EP you got, it might have had up to eight new songs. Here's Radiohead road testing the lead track in Toronto. It's called My Iron Lung. Radiohead, live in Toronto, June 6th, 1995. And you know what an iron lung is, right? It's one of those massive medical machines that help people with certain conditions breathe. Tom apparently has a real one at home someplace. Boy, look at the time. We've been at this Radiohead thing for this long, and we still haven't made it to the second album. All right, don't worry. We'll get to that. Now that we have a good foundation of where Radiohead came from and the struggles they went through in the early days, we can look ahead to part two of this three-part feature in the band. On the next episode, we'll spend more time on The Benz, their second album, and then move through OK Computer and on to the last records in their major label deal. There's plenty more to come. Meanwhile, every time we release a new Ongoing History radio show, there is a corresponding podcast. You can get yours for free wherever you find on-demand audio. Just remember to rate and review when you can. That's really, really helpful for us. I can also be found at my website, which is ajournalofmusicalthings.com. It's always being updated with all sorts of music news and information. There's also a daily newsletter to remind you of all that music news and information. Totally free, never any spam. I'm also around on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and all email can go to alan at alancross.ca. See you next time for part two of this history of Radiohead. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.